We are in the book of Isaiah. We're continuing on in our series there. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 39. If you are using the Bible in the pew rack that looks like this, you can find that on page 599. Last week, Stephen uh, took us through chapters 36, 37, and 38, over 80 verses, and I'll be taking you through eight verses today. So uh, Stephen got the short end of that stick. Uh, no, it's, it's intentionally divided the way it was. We did that in, in the consultation together. But that is the chapter we have before us, Isaiah 39, and I'd ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all the realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that what your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh that you've spoken is good. For he thought, There'll be peace and security in my days. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. <clears throat> Father, there is nothing that happens of spiritual good in our hearts apart from you. We can't conjure it up, we can't manufacture it, we can't just try harder. We need the help of your spirit, both to understand your word, but especially to take what we see here and to be changed by it, to be shaped by it in our hearts, our minds, to grow more like Christ. So together right now, before we camp out on this passage, we collectively ask for the help of your spirit in our midst. That's what we need so that your word is dwelling amongst us and shaping us, so that we're conformed to the image of your son and not to this world. 
Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah is a big and massive book, and theologians and Bible scholars debate the details of how this big book is structured. But there's little debate about the kind of broad shape of the book. So chapters 1 to 35 are largely written in light of the threat of Assyrian invasion. They call on Israel to trust God instead of their many other potential alliances that they'd be tempted to form. And though those chapters speak of both judgment and deliverance, they highlight God's looming judgment. And then you have chapters 40 to 66, which are largely written in light of the pending Babylonian exile. They call on Israel to cast their eyes on Yahweh and see his power to deliver from Babylon and from sin. And though they speak of both judgment and deliverance, they highlight God's ultimate deliverance. Now, one way Isaiah makes this big structure obvious is by telling three stories in the middle of this, these two sections. Stories that put a capstone on the first section and then pave the way for the next section. Last week, Stephen called these three stories the hinge. The first two stories in this, in this middle section we looked at last week. And they were stories of when King Hezekiah trusted Yahweh and then Yahweh delivered. In the first half of Isaiah, Isaiah's been preaching and preaching and preaching about making Yahweh our stronghold, making him our trust, looking to him. And then he's like, you want to know how this works? Hezekiah trusted me when Assyria was right at your doorstep and he delivered them. Hezekiah trusted me, Yahweh, even with mustard seed-sized faith when he was sick. And Yahweh says, I delivered him. You can see it's the capstone of what's been happening up to that point, but there's one more story to tell, a counterpoint. If the first two stories were stories that proved the wisdom of trusting Yahweh, this story proves the folly of not trusting Yahweh. And in so doing, it paves the way for the second half of Isaiah, which is written largely in light of the Babylonian exile. So as we dive into this chapter, into this story, I don't want to read it as kind of a mere historical curiosity. It's a story that's been intentionally placed right here and told in order to persuade us of the folly and danger of failing to trust our God. So let's hear it as that. We'll begin with setting the scene. Good King Hezekiah 
has broken from the ways of his dad, the bad king Ahaz. Do you guys remember Ahaz from back in chapter 7 and 8? He was facing an invasion from the northern kingdom who had been in league with a nation of Syria and were trying to get them to join in a fight against the Assyrians. And Isaiah came along and pleaded with Ahaz and said, don't, don't be worried about them, but don't go and form another alliance. Just trust Yahweh. But instead, bad King Ahaz forms a political alliance that dooms Israel. But Hezekiah is different from his dad. He decides to trust Yahweh. So when he contracts a terrible disease that's going to kill him, he offers this mustard seed size prayer of faith, and God responds with disproportionate power. Not only will I prolong your life a full 15 years, I'm going to heal you, but he adds in chapter 38, verse 6, I also promise you the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. And on top of that, I'm going to give you a sign that proves my power. So he tells him to get his old man's pocket watch. And he makes it spin backwards, turning back Ahaz's clock. Of course, it's way more amazing than that because there weren't pocket watches back then. It was a sundial, and the shadow itself moves backwards. But the symbolism of the point is the same. Ahaz's failures will give way to Hezekiah's success. And as we saw then in chapters 36 and 37, that's exactly what happens. God does deliver Israel from the Assyrians. I think it's important to just reorient you a little bit to the timeline of these four chapters because that can be a bit confusing. As Stephen explained last week, week, chapters 38 and 39 occur before chapters 36 and 37. We know that because in 38.6, there's a reference to the future deliverance from the Assyrians. So what does that mean for our chapter, verse chapter 39? The events of our chapter take place after 38, but before verses 36, or chapters 36 and 37. I think Isaiah put the stories in this order because he wants to set up chapter 39, and our, our chapter, he wants to use chapter 39 to set up the rest of the book, and the reference to Babylon is going to set that up really well. And it also works well to kind of group the two stories of trusting Yahweh together and then have the third story of not trusting him. So that means that when we arrive at our chapter, Hezekiah's fresh off of being healed from a deadly disease. And he's heard God's promise of deliverance in 38.6, and he's seen the sundial's shadow move backwards. I mean, talk about a spiritual high. Oftentimes, we're most vulnerable to spiritual attack when we're weak and we're worn down. 
We've had a series of discouragements. Feels like all is going against us. We're emotionally, physically fatigued and snap. Satan snacks us. But sometimes we're most vulnerable when we're riding high. Everything's going well. And because everything's going well, we let our guard down. And when the armor is lowered, snap. Satan snags us. That's exactly what's about to happen with Hezekiah. Matt Laidlaw explained it like this. When times were good, his God got small. There's a lot of wisdom in that little phrase. I'd encourage you to tuck it away, take it to heart. When times were good, his God got small. And so here's how that all plays out. A foreign envoy arrives at Jerusalem. And we're immediately faced with the first question, why are they here? We're told explicitly in verse 1, they're here because they'd heard the king, the king had been sick and recovered. But that's kind of a head-scratcher. I mean, is that sufficient grounds to send a whole entourage? Every time you hear about a far-off foreign dignity who had a sickness and got better, send an envoy along? I think it implies here just a bit more. I think there's a detail that the text teases throughout the story but never explicitly states. A detail that was mentioned in 38 verse 6. If they'd heard about the healing, what other news might they have heard? Have you heard about King Hezekiah? Have you heard what God's done? He was dying, and then his God healed him. And rumor is that that same God promised him victory over the Assyrians. I think it's likely. And this prompts Merodach Baladan to send an envoy. Merodach who? If you're asking that question, you're not too far off. He was not a uh, high-profile king. Yes, he was the king of Babylon, but Babylon was not yet the impressive nation we tend to think of. There were no hanging gardens yet. No seventh wonder of the world, the Babylonian walls yet. Babylon was just a relatively small, though rambunctious, little nation. Maybe we might compare it a bit to how we might perceive Mexico. We know about it. We're not thinking it's a major world power. But Merodic Baladan was not a big fan of Assyria. He was chomping at the bit to lead a group of allies against their dark Assyrian overlords. So even though the text doesn't intentionally tell us, or sorry, so even though the text, I think intentionally, doesn't tell us 
Merodic's motives in sending the envoys. I think it's implied throughout as the story unfolds. And in those days, if you were forming an alliance, you'd want that super god out of Jerusalem on your side if you're going to have any chance of being able to defeat those powerful Assyrians. Especially if that super god had promised to defeat the Assyrians. I mean, all gods on deck is how he's probably thinking. And so they come with a fancy royal letter, no doubt beautifully scripted and sealed with a king's signet ring. They also bring a gift. It's the kind of backslapping and glad-handing that's done today in the business world when you're trying to grease a big sale. Come sit in my corporate box at the Leafs game. Here, have another glass of wine. We're so impressed with your leadership at your company. You're a rising star, young man. They are lucky to have you. The same thing can happen among pastors or ancient royals. It can all go to your head. Yeah, I'm a pretty big deal. I am impressive. I'm glad someone finally recognizes it. I wish my own people saw how great I was, but at least the outsiders do. And in the case of pastors or ancient Israelite kings, we can even spiritualize it. I've been faithfully serving God, unlike my predecessor Ahaz. And as a result, look at all the good that's come. And so Hezekiah decides to indulge himself just a bit. His envoys patting him on the back. He'll show them how worthy of back patting he is. So he shows them his wealth. Like all of it. Yes, the gold and silver, but down to the spices and the oils. And and it was an impressive amount of treasure. You might remember back when King Solomon was king. He accumulated, the scriptures tell us, a massive, massive amount of wealth. And that massive treasure trove still belonged to Jerusalem. So what he showed them might have been one of the richest treasuries in the entire Fertile Crescent. And he is showing them everything, everything in the storehouses, everything in all his realm. I mean, if he's taking them on a tour of his mansion, he's showing them the guest, the shower in the guest bedroom. Like, this is everything. But it also tells us that he showed them his armory. I'm not sure that's shrewd statesmanship. Look at all the money we have. We're filthy rich, and now let me show you our security system and how to operate it. (laughs) My guess is that Hezekiah did this because, again, as the text implies, Merodach wanted him as an ally. And he was trying to prove what a great ally he would be. Nonetheless, it's a pretty foolish move. It provides just the kind of intel a feisty nation would need to compel them to turn on you once you've served their purposes. 
But the bottom line is this. This tour of all of his treasures was a move of complete trust. A fancy letter and a generous gift, and now we're practically partners. I trust you completely. This after Isaiah has been telling him over and over and over, only place your trust in Yahweh. This after Hezekiah seen how God is actually trustworthy and that alliances are not needed. When he's riding high, the armor comes down. When times are good, his God gets small and he gets plucked. Can I ask us to consider where are we inclined to make the same error? So then Isaiah comes along and asks plucked Hezekiah a question. It's there in verse 3. He said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah responds a bit like a kid who's got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> he only partially answers the question. Uh, I'll tell you where they're from, but I'm not going to mention what they said. No word about the fancy letter and its contents. Could it be? Because it hinted at a potential anti-Assyrian alliance? His dodging that question implies something. The envoys said something he doesn't want to share with the prophet Isaiah. He wants to pass it off like he's innocent. Uh, I wasn't stealing cookies. I was just checking to make sure they were all still there. And his dodgy response is telling. I want to make one other observation about his dodgy response. Look at where he says they came from at the end of verse 3. They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. That word for far country is the same word from chapter 33, verse 13, that we looked at just before or at the start of our missions week. Do you remember that verse? Where Yahweh says, Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. And we saw how that actually was God's heart for those who are far and those who are near to hear of his glory. Same words picked up in chapter six, the very last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66. So turn there, just the end of Isaiah. Verse 19. Isaiah 66, verse 19. says, I will set a sign among them 
And from then I'll send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who drew the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory amongst the nations. Huh, people from far away are in Jerusalem. One other passage we've got to look at. At the very beginning of Isaiah, chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. This is in that prelude section of Isaiah as he sets the tone for the book. Isaiah 2, and look at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now this is referring to where Jerusalem would have been located. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why will the people be coming to Jerusalem? That he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from, the, from Jerusalem. Why does God want the nations to be coming to Jerusalem? The nations from far away to be coming to Jerusalem. It's so that they can learn God's word. So God does this remarkable miracle for Hezekiah in chapter 38. And envoys from a far country come, and instead of sharing wisdom with them, like Solomon did with the queen of Sheba, instead of pointing them to Yahweh, he shows them his wealth. It's like the 14-year-old trying to prove she belongs in the cool crowd. Look what I got. Heaven forbid that God brings the nations to our doorstep and instead of telling them the good news about Jesus, all we do is try to prove to them how impressive we are and how we measure up to their worldly standards. Isaiah, not surprisingly, isn't satisfied with Hezekiah's response, so he presses further in verse 4. What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah responds with, sounds like honest transparency, but sometimes when we're caught in a lie, we kind of, oh, I'm going to be really honest, so it sounds like I'm not lying. They have seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them, which is true. What have they seen in your house? They've seen everything. I showed them everything. Everything in my storehouses. They could have added, well, you didn't ask, but I also showed them everything in the whole realm. And specifically, he doesn't itemize that he showed them his armory. Why would he leave that detail out? Could it be because he was trying to hide from Isaiah the hint at military alliance such a detail would betray? But Yahweh is God's prophet. 
and he knows all that's happened. The scene with the envoys was not a mere courtesy visit with a kind gesture of goodwill in return. This was a betrayal of trust. It was the forming of the very kind of allegiance that Isaiah has been railing against for 35 painstaking chapters. Yahweh's already told you, Hezekiah, that you're safe from Assyria. Dad's pocket watch turned back. And you know he's trustworthy because, because, well, you're not dead. And yet, here you are, laying the groundwork for an anti-Assyrian alliance instead of putting all your trust in Yahweh. And yet it's so like us, isn't it? God is faithful. He loves us enough to redeem us from our sins, to send his son Jesus to die in our stead so we could be reconciled to him. And then when we put our faith in him, he gives us his spirit, makes us alive, restores us to full fellowship with him. And then he sits on the throne as the sovereign of all the world, caring for us individually, hearing our prayers when we cry out to him, taking care of us, taking even our bad decisions and working them for good. And yet despite all that, we find ways to put our trust in anything but him. Or I think maybe more accurate, him, we put our trust in him plus some other things to kind of hedge our bets. Look at where that leads. Verse 5. Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. It leads to Babylonian exile. It leads to 70 years of anguish for God's people. It leads to massive loss, blessings forfeited, And yet Hezekiah hears this and he's relieved. Which kind of raises the other big question of our story. Why this response to that message? The first big question of our story is why were these envoys coming all the way from Babylon when all that they'd heard was a foreign king had gotten sick and then recovered? And I think the implied answer was that key detail from 38.6, a detail that hangs over our whole story that I think in some ways Isaiah accentuates it by its absence that alongside the healing God had promised defeat of the Assyrians. And that same detail I think offers the critical clue for understanding Hezekiah's response. Think about it. After such a promise, 
Why is Hezekiah toying around with this potential ally? Why is he entertaining their overtures? And so as soon as the prophet shows up and begins confronting him, he knew he was guilty. He knew he'd done something horrible. And his mind immediately goes to the Assyrian threat. Babylon's not on his mind. He's a king when Assyria is the major empire breathing down his throat, and that's where his mind goes. God had promised me that he would deliver Jerusalem from those Assyrians. He'd said, I'm safe, but I've just betrayed a lack of confidence in that promise by laying the groundwork for an alliance with Merodic Baladin. So when the prophet confronts him, it seems like he's thinking, oh no, I've blown it. Yahweh's not going to protect us anymore. Assyria is going to sack us. But when the prophet speaks, he says, you'll lose treasure and your sons to Babylon. And Hezekiah waits for a second. He's like, "Uh, is that it? You mean we're still safe? And he breathes a sigh of relief. Good, he says. The peace and security of our days that God's promised has not been revoked. Of course, not knowing just how terrible an ultimate Babylonian exile would be. Not knowing that his sin had just paved the way for one of the darkest eras in Israel's entire history. It's so often the case when we use worldly means to deal with our problems, we just move one problem aside to find a darker problem waiting behind it. This was a dark day for Israel. A bleak, terrible darkness that paves the way for chapter 40, which we'll be considering next week. Perhaps you remember back to chapter 7 and Ahaz when he botched it by trusting alliances instead of Yahweh. And at that time, the prophet Isaiah pointed out there'd be another king, a virgin-born king who would ultimately reign. And that better king further described in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And so the scriptures pressed us then to consider which king we would follow, Ahaz or the virgin-born king, savior of the world. Well, Hezekiah is a lot better than his father Ahaz. God turned back the pocket watch. And yet, Hezekiah too fails to trust Yahweh. Both so different than Jesus, who entrusted himself to the Father, who judges justly, who endured the worst so that God's victory could be accomplished. 
He's just obedient to the end, trusting his father to the end. So here at the the hinge of Isaiah, the question remains from chapter 7. Which king is our king? Which king are we going to follow? And here's the sobering reality. Every time we choose to distrust God, to depend on something other than his promises, we betray who our true king is in that moment. We're following the path of, well, Hezekiah in this chapter, but Ahaz his whole life. And ultimately, that path ends in our destruction. Maybe capital D destruction in an ultimate way, but even lowercase d. And what do we do then? What do we do when we've distrusted King Jesus and drifted back toward Ahaz? What do we do when our distrust of our God has led us into dark places? There's a lot of ways we could answer that, but one of the best places to go is the book of Lamentations because it was written right when Jerusalem fell. I'm not going to go there and explain that book because we're actually going to sing a song in just a moment that we wrote back when our church was studying Lamentations. You might be familiar with the classic hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The chorus of Great is Thy Faithfulness is taken right out of Lamentations 3, but when we're going through Lamentations, we realize that the rest of the verses don't exactly flesh out the context of Lamentations But that's an important song because lamentation is the song that the Bible gives us for when our sin has led to our ruin. And so now we have a hymn that we wrote back then for when we, we can sing it when our sin has led to our ruin. What do we do? And we have the words of lamentations there for us, but it's a hymn that can be tricky for some of us to sing because not everyone in this room will be feeling in the same way the weight of God's judgment upon them. So here's what I'll say. If a righteous man like Jeremiah can take up the lament to God on behalf of his people, like he does in the book of Lamentations, so can any of us who are in this room. Or if a righteous man like Isaiah, who can say in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So can we who are in this room. I think most importantly, this song gives us language for when, like Isaiah, we've acted like we belong more to Ahaz than we do to Jesus. And if we can sing this song we're about to sing with sincerity, it will pave the way for us to hear Isaiah chapter 40 next week. So join me in prayer as our musicians come forward and we sing the conclusion of the sermon. Father, in big ways and sometimes small ways, we 
hedge our bets. We trust other things but you. We forget Isaiah's message and repeat the error that Ahaz began. And in big ways or small ways, we feel the repercussions of that. And so now, as we sing these words to you, hear our prayer. For some of us, very personal. For others of us, others of us just more of a collective prayer as your people cry out to you. But hear our prayer, God. In Jesus' name, amen.